We are in Galatians. We're near the end of Galatians, in fact, and we're in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 to 10 this morning. You can find that in your Bibles. And let's just pray first, and then we'll... Uh, Father, I want to thank you for just your presence with us already this morning. Father, we're here to honor you. Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would just, Lord, just speak to us. We would respond to you, that we would honor you with all that we do in our lives. But Lord, as we just take a moment out to, to listen to, to, uh, and, and to read your word, Father, that you would just speak into each and every heart. Help us to respond to it. Help us um, to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Paul reaches the end of his letter, he, he begins with, I guess, a final, a climactic appeal to the Galatian church to hold on to truth. As we heard last week, this, there's a principle of sharing, and, and this principle of sharing is one of the marks of the Christian experience. It carries with it the idea for common fellowship with Christ, our common faith, but even our sharing in, in the suffering of Christ. And I guess um, Philippians is summed up quite nicely in chapter 3 and verse 10. It says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, to participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. But also in the New Testament, this idea of sharing also refers to the sharing of our material blessings, money, wealth, resources with one another. So we see in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, 44, it says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. And then there are examples of people like Barnabas, who sold his land, who put his money into a common pot so that no one went without. By comparison, in the UK, about 60% of people give to charity. The average person gives something like 0.75 to 2% of their income. Those who claim to be Christians do only slightly better. They give about 3%. Research actually done in America says that out of a hundred evangelical Christians, only six give at least 10%. I wonder, are we doing any better in the UK? I suspect perhaps not. But God is calling his church to be generous. And God is ultimately building a living community with Jesus at the center of everything that we do, a place where, above all else, where we belong to him. And he is looking for a people who he can have pleasure in, which involves a lot more than just simply attending church on a Sunday. Like you don't need to spend too long reading your Bibles to discover that compassion is at the very heart of God's character and his wonderful work of redemption. In the New Testament, God's compassion for the poor is well documented. But, but caring for the poor, of course, is not just a New Testament phenomenon. The nation of Israel were given very clear instructions about how to build this generous attitude into their culture which should result in the needs of the poor being met. So throughout the Old Testament, a lot has been said about giving, often referred to as a tithe. 
So a Jewish family would give 10% of their income to the ministry of the priests and to the work of the temple. Another tenth was set aside for feasts and for celebrations, for parties, for holidays. Alongside this, they were to help the poor. Farmers would leave some of their crops to be collected by the poor so they could eat. We see example, of course, in the story of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. Also, there were special offerings were taken for building projects like Nehemiah, who organized the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter, um, chapter 10. So the average Old Testament Jew would give at least 25% of their income that would be given to the work of God and also to the helping of the poor. But sadly, they so often omitted to fulfill their responsibilities, they became better known for their greed and for their mistreatment of the poor rather than for helping them. So if you know anything about the story of the Old Testament, we see the cycle of sin, of judgment, of repentance from Israel, which came as a direct result of their failure to obey God. They neglected their responsibility to the poor. They lusted after foreign gods. They replaced the worship of the one true God with false worship. And so often their lack of concern for the poor was actually an indication of their lack of love for God. Tragically, God's ultimate fury with Israel was not rooted in their lack of religion, but in their failure to love God and to care for the poor. And even though prophet after prophet challenged them, ironically, these people were religiously fasting, not unlike the Galatian church was, but they were failing to care for the homeless and to divide their bread with the hungry revealing the true condition of their hearts. And I wonder how different we are. See, our attitudes, our actions in doing good often reveal the true condition of our heart before God. And and there's this link here between the fruits of the Spirit we spoke about two weeks ago. And it is this idea of compassion, of generosity, that Paul has in mind when he writes these next few verses in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. So let's read them together. It says this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man sows what he reaps. Whoever sows to please their flesh will reap... Sorry... From the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So Paul, again, he's he's urging the Galatians not to be deceived, which has been one of these big themes throughout the book of Galatians. And Paul now uses this farming-based principle to set out his arguments. In fact, this basic um, principle of sowing and reaping is found throughout the entire Bible. And God has ordained that we will reap what we sow. So God has told us to be careful what we sow. He describes our material possessions like seed with two possible kinds of soil, the flesh and the spirit. 
So we can use our money, we can use our possessions to promote the flesh or to promote the things of the Spirit. But once you have finished sowing, you cannot change the harvest. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Now, you don't need to be an expert in horticulture to understand this very simple principle. So if you sow carrot seeds, you're not going to get broccoli. No matter how much you want broccoli, no matter how much you love broccoli, you will not get broccoli. If you want broccoli, you sow broccoli seeds. You with me so far? It's not difficult, is it? So whatever you sow, you will reap. And even though that seed can lie on the ground for a long time, it will come up. But it's not the reaping that determines that there's going to be a harvest, it's the sowing. There are always consequences to our actions. It's God's, it's the way that God's world works in our lives now and also in the one that is to come. And the two ways that Paul highlights here that you can sow into your lives, you can sow to please the flesh, the consequences, you will reap destruction, or you can sow to please the spirit and you will reap eternal life. And I I wonder how often we we look at the fields of our life and think about what we're actually sowing into it. Perhaps, sadly, much of what we sow is wasted on meaningless things and and that, that actually never really bring glory and honor to God. But there's also a wider principle here um, to this application. Yes, you will reap what you will sow, but also you will reap in proportion to what you sow. So in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 to 12, we read probably one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture, certainly when it comes to generosity and to giving. And God's people have not been given their tithe to God. And he simply tells them, you have robbed me. And the consequence of this is worth noting. It says the window of heaven is closed down and God's blessing has been removed from them. And there's this link suggested here between generosity and God's blessing on us. See, if our attitude to what God has given us is that this is mine and we we hold on to it with, with clenched fists, it means that we cannot, in fact, we will not give it away. But it also means we will not be able to receive either. You can catch nothing with a cleansed fist. It's just not possible. And God wants us to be open-handed, to be good distributors of his wealth, to be willing to give and to receive. In fact, Paul picks up this this, this same thought in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. He says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. What Paul doesn't say, of course, is the nature of this blessing. You see, this is not a formula for financial gain, as some may have you believe, but the way in which God pours out his blessing and in what form that takes, only God knows. And we need to trust in a sovereign God who knows us better than we know ourselves, and he will give us according to our needs. It's worth noting also the Bible not only has got a lot to say about generosity, but also makes it very clear that hard work is important. Farming and sowing of seeds involves hard work. 
I grew up on a dairy farm, didn't sow many seeds, but we spent a lot of time milking cows. And tell you what, it's hard work, particularly this time of year. It's very cold. It's quite miserable out there. And the Bible speaks very strongly about not being lazy. So hard work, or sorry, so work hard at what God has called you to do. God has given each one of us certain responsibilities, certain giftings. We need to honor him. We need to work hard in in how God has enabled us to. So Paul himself actually sets out a very good example with his own life. He sacrificed, he worked, so that he was not a burden on the church that he served. Of course, He's not actually saying that pastors and church leaders shouldn't get paid, but what he is saying is that we need to guard our hearts and do everything for the glory of God. Paul, of course, is following the example of Jesus himself. And in Jesus, God values of grace, of kindness, of compassion, of generosity were revealed in a person. And Jesus taught more about how we handle our finances than perhaps anything, any other subject. Something like 25% of Jesus' teaching was to do with money and to do with giving. And as Jesus teaches on giving, he takes it one step further than anything that you've ever read in the Old Testament. Because it's not so much about what we give, but how we give. See, the, the issue of giving is to do with love a love for Jesus, a love for humanity, a love for the church. And what Jesus is concerned about is the condition of your heart. So whatever your circumstance, whatever your situation, whether you're well off, whether you're not so well off, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So giving should not become some sort of ritual or some sort of mundane routine. And sometimes we can approach giving as if, well, you know, what's the minimum I can get away with giving to God? Or to put it slightly more bluntly, what's going to cost to buy God off? But behind that question is a heart that loves money more than God. And what really counts in Jesus' eyes is what motivates your giving. And how you handle your money is important to God. It should be part of a good financial stewardship. See, all that you do with your money should honor him. And it begins with giving generously to him, first of all. But you should also use the resource that God is giving you wisely. It includes just sensible spending plans, just good budgeting. And and even though the Bible teaches generosity, God also wants us to enjoy what he has given us. It's biblical to set aside a portion of your income for an evening out, for a holiday, for, for just a nice meal or just, just some fun. And every part of your life is worship. Includes your work, but also includes your rest and your play as well. And the Bible teaches us to both give generously with joy, but also to enjoy what God has given you. And the wonderful promise for those who are generous is that they will reap a harvest. But behind that promise is also a warning, and we see this in verse 9. It tells us we must be careful not to get tired and weary of the work of God. And I guess there's many reasons why we can get tired. Sometimes it can be just a lack of spiritual, um, or we get spiritually exhausted because of a, a lack of devotion to Jesus. 
You know, it's easy to actually work for the Lord, and we pour everything into either church work or into working for God, but we allow our spiritual motivation to die. Like the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, who had lost their first love, who were, who were backslidden, yet they're still going through the motions of church. So they probably had amazing worship service. They probably had done amazing things for their community, but they had lost their love for Jesus and their love for God. Or in Malachi chapter 1 verse 13, where the leader's um, attitude was, what a wearisome thing this is. And actually God accuses them of snorting at God's work. They were serving God with, with just this attitude of constant complaining. And we need to guard our hearts in, in all of this. We don't become weary in, the, in this sense. But also we can become weary because of lack of prayer. So we're told in Luke 18 that, that they should always pray and not give up. See, prayer is to our spiritual life what breath is to our physical life. If you stop breathing, you're going to faint. You're going to pass out. You can't afford to stop praying either. But also it's possible to get faint because of a lack of nourishment. Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Listen, if you try to keep going without proper food or proper rest, again, you're going to pass out. You're going to faint. It's so important that you wait on the Lord, that you take time in God's word, that you feed yourself on him and in him, that you get your strength for each and for every day. And when you do, the promise that Paul makes is this, that at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And just like when you plant a seed, it takes time for it to grow and to bear fruit. There are seasons in your life just as there are seasons in nature. You must give time for that seed to grow and for it to bear fruit. But you must never forget that God is the one who's in charge of the harvest, not the workers. So every day you must sow seeds and keep sowing seeds so that one day you will reap the harvest. Remember, the believer who walks in the Spirit, who sows in the Spirit, will reap a spiritual harvest. So if you sow generously, the harvest will be bountiful, if not in this life, certainly in the next. Which is why in verse 9, Paul tells Christians to do good. So what is the motivation for this doing good? Well, as we sow to please the Spirit, we will reap a harvest. And, and verse 10 explains, and, and actually it's quite sweeping, it's comprehensive in its simplicity. First of all, it shows that the Christian life is not all about just meetings and more meetings, or even actually about conversions. It's about doing good to the person before us. Listen, this is gospel living. Now, what I'm not saying, okay, don't get me wrong here, we're not undermining anything that Paul has been teaching already in the book of Galatians or elsewhere in Scripture. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. Listen, nothing changes that, but out of knowing who we are in Christ, out of our identity being in Christ, out of knowing that it's only because of the work of the cross through his precious blood has been shed that we have any hope for our future at all, out of that we give to those around us at every opportunity. 
This involves much more than just teaching the word or being generous. It involves doing good to everyone. It's very easy to do good to those who are good to us. At least I find that quite easy. And then do evil to those who are evil to us. But the Christian is supposed to return good for evil. And to do this, we need his help. We need the Holy Spirit's help. And we do this with a spirit of, of Christian love. In fact, a Christian's good works are actually a spiritual sacrifice that ultimately goes to God himself. So as you love, as you serve, as you're generous to one another, God gets the glory, his name is honored, and you're doing it unto him. Secondly, the word doing reminds us that we are actively to give to those around us whatever love discerns is best for them. So if this is love in action as well as in word. Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light shine before men or before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. So it's not only by our words that we are witnessing, it's by our works. And very often it's our good works that actually will pave the way for the gospel to be heard, for gospel conversations to start. Our good works will actually win the right to be heard. So perhaps the key lesson that Jesus taught and lived out is that he didn't withdraw from the world. He didn't hide himself away, but he connected with ordinary people. He was around very ordinary people. But at the same time, he made it very clear that our investments, that our confidence should not be in the passing pleasures of this world. Instead, we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven And when you give and when you share with others, you're actually storing up for yourself heavenly treasures. 1 Timothy 6, 18 tells us to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And being being generous actually enables you to take hold of life and to plan for your future because God has this extraordinary way of just breaking into people's lives in, in ways actually you least expect it. And the way that this works out is in the context of others. It's through kindness. It's through generosity. And, but we need God's help to stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to live with his compassion for the poor, his tenderness for the vulnerable, to be good to everyone we meet, which includes the person at the, at the, the checkout at the supermarket. It includes the waiter that serves your meal. It even includes that person who rings you, that cold caller who's trying to sell you double glazing. Everyone, even them. But especially to those who belong to the family of believers. It starts with family. Your fellow adopted brothers and sisters in God's church. 1 Timothy 5, 8 reminds us that a Christian should always care for his own family before he cares for his neighbor. Now, of course, that's not the limit of what we do. And it certainly doesn't mean that the local church becomes some sort of spiritual clique so that we become isolated from the rest of the world and then does nothing to bring the gospel to those who are in most need. So there's a matter of balance in, in all of this. I think it's fair to say, just in the context that Paul is speaking into, that the believers in Paul's day were probably in much greater need than, they, than, than the sort of surrounding world, or, world um, around them at that particular time. 
See, when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, there was this lavish explosion of generosity, of kindness among God's people. But for many of those early Jews who came to faith in Christ, life was hard. They were rejected. They were disinherited from their family and friends. They, those who were saved found themselves with nothing. They were poor, even homeless. But the response to this was this radical, spirit-inspired sharing and caring, which meant that they give generously to one another. This was a massive welfare project, so much so that the, the apostles actually put a team together to administrate it properly. They truly believed the gospel. They lived it out and preached a message that was amazingly good news to the poor and to everyone. And the early church were just marked by this extraordinary generosity because they believed if they saw someone in need and they could meet that need, they would. Now, this is a far cry from giving 10% to the work of the church. They were in fellowship together. And for them, that meant a common ownership and a generous lifestyle that just gripped the entire church. And as they give, they grew. And there appears to be this significant connection between their care for the poor and this dramatic growth of the early church. And we, we need to have that same heart of compassion that the early church had. This is the way that is meant to be. And this is a deliberate choice that you make to do good to those that you will meet today and tomorrow and the day after that. And again, you need God's strength through the Holy Spirit to give us the stamina so that we just don't get tired of doing good. Remember back in Galatians chapter 5, we were told that we need to walk by the Spirit. Now in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, we are told to sow to the Spirit. And if we are to reap a harvest, we need to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit to cultivate this godly character within our lives, but also this attitude of generosity to each and every person that we meet. So let us be known for our generosity. It's one of our values. Gone. Pause up there a minute ago. It's gone. We need, to, we need to be known for our generosity. After all, it's a mark of the Spirit-filled church. So give freely, joyfully, generously. It's not about the amount of money that you, that you give into a church or mission or charity. Listen, God cannot love you any more than he does already. He will not love you any less than he does right now. God is ultimately concerned about your heart which of course goes way beyond money. God is looking for men and women who will first of all give their heart to Jesus. And out of a heart that is changed by the Holy Spirit will flow this gift of generosity and compassion. And you will serve in practical ways. You will bear one another's burdens. You will give with hospitality. But you give because you love Jesus. You want to see his kingdom grow. This was the lifestyle that Jesus lived. It was what Paul encouraged. And my prayer is that Freedom Church grows in faith and in generosity in this way as well, that God would get the glory. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is, is, is very practical.
But Lord, it starts with a heart that is just transformed by the gospel. That we know, Lord, our love is in you, Lord, because you've loved us first of all. So, Lord, we pray, Lord, we want to follow your example, Jesus. But, Lord, we know that we can't even do that by ourselves. We can't do it in our own strength. Lord, it's only through you. So I want to pray right now, just before we, we sing just a song to close. Holy Spirit, just come and just, just fill us afresh. More, Lord. No. Lord, just fill us afresh, Lord. Lord, we need you. Lord, to be a generous people, to be a loving people, to be people who do good. Lord, we need your help. So Holy Spirit, we pray, come and fill us. Come and fill us. Lord, this week, whatever, whatever will, it will happen this week, Father, the people that we will meet, Lord, the opportunities that we will get, Father, by your Spirit, we pray that you would lead us. Lord, help us to walk by the Spirit, but also to sow to the Spirit this week. Lord, we need you. Oh, Lord, we're desperate for you. So God, come and move. Brought your Spirit afresh upon us. In Jesus' name.